0: So they cast lots, and a lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said, to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them, So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then men feared the Lord greatly. exilic prophet. God called him. Jonah really says nothing. He just refuses and he runs. He runs from God's presence and he runs from God's calling. He goes to Tarshish, which is the exact opposite way of Nineveh, Nineveh which he was called to do. Everything we read about Jonah took him farther away from God. It took him down and down. In this account, we have the consequences. Of what happened when he ran. Some time ago, Cindy and I were at Green Lake Conference Center in Wisconsin, and we had the kids were young then, and they had kind of like a family week, and it was great. Got, kids got a lot to do with uh, things, and we got to have some fun together. And one of the things that uh, we thought would be great is uh, they're having pontoon rides. That sounds great, right? And so somebody had casually mentioned something about you know, on Green Lake, sometimes storms just kind of kick up out of nowhere. But it's a beautiful day out. So we got in this pontoon and we're driving around the lake and all of a sudden, sure enough, a storm begins to creep in and the waves are getting a little higher. Not too bad. But we're kind of making a circle around the lake and we go a little further and it's getting worse and getting worse. I don't swim well, so I'm getting kind of nervous at this point. Plus, we got three little kids. Cindy can swim, but I don't think she could save all three and me at the same time. <clears throat> so I'm really, really nervous, and, uh, and then it got really bad, and that, then you kind of tend to look at your pilot, which was a college girl who was working there, and she was white-knuckling it. She was nervous. I'm nervous. I could see the people with us were starting to get nervous, and that storm got bad, and I'm like, oh, man, just pull over to any shore. I don't care if i got to walk three miles back. Just get me off this water, and uh, we made it back, but boy, that was, a, that, was a rough, that was a rough day. A white knuckling storm, you could call it. That's what Jonah's in. That's what some of you are in. A storm, maybe not of your choosing, it's just come up quick. And you're beginning to white knuckle it. It's getting scary. You're getting nervous. You're going to learn a lot. If you haven't faced a storm, you will. It's just a part of life, and it's a part of what it means to walk with God, is there are storms. And so let's learn from this chapter, because we're told right away in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, there was a great storm. Please don't miss that. God sent a storm. Now that might strike you as odd, because maybe in your thinking, you're like, well, God's a God of love. He would never send a storm. Certainly that couldn't, the circumstances in your life, certainly that couldn't be God according to this. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe God sent the storm. Maybe God allowed the storm. And here he certainly did. Let's look at some of the dynamics of that storm. It's intentional. It's an intentional act and it's meant to have an effect. And as we read through this, God's actions are far more substantial than Jonah's, which we're about to see even more. The problem, from a human perspective, is you know, sometimes when we see storms, we're ignorant of the fact of what's behind it. We're also ignorant of the fact of the impact it might have on others. You see, when God sends a storm upon your life, there are other people around you who are affected. In this account, we tend to forget the sailors in this account. We tend to think of the storm and Jonah. And so what was the purpose behind this storm? We're kind of told as we read on. And as storms come upon our life, at first we try everything humanly possible. Everything experience has taught us. These sailors, the nautical science of it, they turn to that. They turn to reason to teach them what to do. You can ask no more of these sailors. They did everything they possibly could. They used every experience they knew. And so we're not surprised when all the human effort failed, they called upon their gods. Because they didn't know what else to do. Now if you notice as I read through it that the storm kept going worse and worse, it's, it's pretty great right now in verse 4, and it only gets worse. It's probably like when you couldn't get worse, the sailors are like, oh great, now it's getting really bad. you know. And so you kind of begin to sense this desperation as they call on their gods. And again, they're caught in a storm, not of their own doing. This is a storm sent for Jonah. They're just going to happen to gain a lot through it. Because God never wastes a storm. At times, God will send a storm to get your attention. It's frightening, but it will at times <clears throat> leave other people and its wake. So remember that. How about Jonah? <clears throat> the storm's great, and it's getting, the sailors are getting desperate, and, 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 and they're kind of throwing cargo over. They're doing everything they can hu- uh, humanly uh, think of. But then there's Jonah. <clears throat> He's sleeping. A lot of help you are, Jonah. There he is sleeping. Now, sleeping doesn't always offer proof of innocence, does it? It may be a carnal security. In Jonah's case, it's outright rebellion. Here he's probably sleeping for a couple of reasons. One, it's a result maybe of exhaustion, depression. Depression really will set in when you run from God. The longer you run, the more depressed you will get. There's nothing wrong again with the sailors on the ship. But Jonah had no business even being on the ship. Because he was running. Remember, that's why he was on the ship. And certainly he had no business sleeping during the storm. Everything we see about Jonah is wrong. It's a wrong response. Everything he does takes him farther from God. Not closer. Verse 6, the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? I think that's a legit question. Get up, call on your God... Perhaps your God will be concerned about us, so we will not perish. In this sense of a multiplicity of gods, the, the captain saying, I don't know, ours aren't working. You got one? <laughs> uh, that, that's desperate. From a pagan, we, we look at this as a pagan. This is an unbelieving captain, an unbelieving a crew. They don't know what to do. So like Jonah, you're sleeping. May, maybe you got a God who's kind of helping you here. We don't know. Could you call on him? At least do something, Jonah. Don't sleep. And he's kind of, I think, irritated with Jonah. I would be. Is this, ca- this crew frantically is casting cargo, calling on gods. And I think the desperation seen in Jonah is he's not asked to help throw the cargo over. Notice that? That would be the first thing I would think of. Hey, get up here, help cast stuff over. No, his first thing they say is, if you got a god, we need you to call on him. Now, in this day, especially in the, the area that he is at, There was not only a multiplicity of gods, there was a god of land, and there was a god of sea, and there was a god of this, and there was a god of this, and there was a god of this. this. They believed in polytheistic view that there were a lot of different gods. That's why they're calling on different gods. And so remember that as we get here, because Jonah makes a statement that gets their attention. They're guilty, Jonah's indifference, if you look at that and contrast it to the unoffending sailor's alarm. I mean, there's a great contrast here between These groups of people. Now imagine the indictment. Because as we read on this, we have a pagan captain calling the prophet of God to prayer. This is a prophet of God. Hey, could you pray? That's interesting. Alone. Yet we never see Jonah pray. No wonder. I mean, if you're stubbornly resisting God, what do you say? Jonah knows he's running from God. And so although this pagan captain, this unbelieving captain, says, hey, pray, he doesn't pray. Which should surprise us. After all, this is a prophet of God. How could Jonah sleep? I thought about that. How could he sleep? I mean, this is a great storm, we're told. I think, as I reflected on this, that perhaps the storm outside seemed insignificant to the storm inside Jonah. There's a real war going on inside him. You see, that's what rebellion and resistance to God will do. You'll never be at peace. There'll only be turmoil. And while he may have looked out the boat and saw high waves, the turmoil inside seemed greater to him. And so he just went down and tried to sleep. You can't ignore reality forever. Jonah couldn't, and neither can you and I. Let me ask you, how do you respond when calamity strikes? How have you responded? storm comes out of nowhere. It could have been a lot of different things. It could have been a wayward child. It could have been a decision you made a couple of years ago, all of a sudden the consequences are there. It could have been a financial bomb. A bad doctor's report. How do you handle the storms and calamity that comes your way? How are you responding right now? Are you running to or away? Are you sleeping or being driven to prayer? Are you responding in anger, or are you responding in surrender? Those are important questions for you and I. But let's look at this search. This is a, a unique account. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. Okay, the gods aren't answering. it got to be one of your fault here. And, and so let's just cast lots. Back then, the cast lots would be like getting stones, and they made a mark or something that identified their name, maybe their initials, who knows. Sometimes it was a little piece of wood, and oftentimes they'd put it just in a garment, maybe something like this, and shook it up, or some cup or something. And the first one that came out, the first stone or first piece of wood, that was kind of how they indicated whose fault it was. Okay? It wasn't very uh, spiritual, But God can even use that. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God can even use casting lots. And in this case, the lot fell to Jonah. He gets bombarded with questions. Okay, tell us now. Whose account has this calamity struck? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Remember, there's a storm raging. They don't have time for small talk here. Give us some information, Jonah, because we're not going to make it. Is there something within your past and your current situation that could help us with this storm? We want to know. Jonah tells them who he is. Verse 9, He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, there's not a multiplicity of gods. I am a God. I am a man who worships the one God True God who's Lord over all. You don't need to call upon all your gods. There's one true God. So that's what he proclaims to them. That's what he proclaims to them. But let's see if he lives it out. You see, things begin to come in focus for the sailors now. And so let's see what happens here. Verse 10. The men became extremely frightened. In other words, they began to put to pieces. This great storm is a result of this one true God. So they're frightened with that thought. Then it comes to them, wait a minute. You say you follow this one true God. How could you do this to us? How could you do this? You're the reason for this storm, and you say you worship and fear the one true God. What are you doing? How could you do this? This doesn't make sense that you'd be rebelling and running against this one true God. And So they rebuke him. Why have you done this? I think it's a logical question. I think it's a logical question in the world we live in for an unbeliever to ask a believer. For the believer who's being very careless and maybe getting drunk, the unbelieving world says, how could you do this? You say you worship the one true God? Look at this. For the believer whose language is no different than the unbelieving world, I think the unbelieving world looks at him and says, how can you do this? You say you worship God, and you speak like that? For the believer who's being careless in other ways, sleeping around, or or, or anger and slander, the unbelieving world, I think, looks at us and says, how can you do this? You say Jesus has changed your life. We don't see it. This is a very logical question they're asking. They're trying to reconcile the two different things Jonah's saying and what's going on. And the problem is Jonah, so the solution has to do with Jonah in their mind. And if God could cause a storm, their thought is, what solution then is there to calming a storm? Now notice Jonah gives an answer or gives no answer to the question posed How could you do this? He doesn't answer. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He had mentioned to them, I'm running. (laughs) It's on me, guys. I'm running. But he never answers how he could do this, which I find interesting. Sailors thought, okay, Jonah, you're running from God. That's why the storm is here. And since you won't pray to him, what should we do? That's pretty convicting, isn't it? You're a Christian. You're in the middle of the storm. And since you're not going to pray, what do we do then? I think it's, again, a logical question they're asking. In verse 11, if you look at the end of it, they said to him, what should we do to you? That the sea may become calm for us. For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. As I look at the end of verse 11, I also think not only is the intensity both on the storm, the outer storm, but the inner storm in Jonah's soul. We're going to see next week a little bit what that looks like. Now, verse 12, notice who thinks of throwing Jonah overboard. It's not the sailors, it's Jonah. Now you've got to be in a bad state to say to a group of guys, hey, toss me over. Right? It makes me ask a couple questions. Why didn't Jonah just repent? Ask me another question. Why didn't he jump in the sea himself? Both would have calmed the storm. You could call it sheer selfishness. But it made me wonder, why did he ask the sailors to throw him in? i got some thoughts to put forth, and we can analyze a little bit. Perhaps out of compassion for the sailors. But if he would have had compassion, wouldn't he have jumped himself? Maybe it was out of desire to be cast into complete dependence upon God alone. That would be a neat thought, but nothing in the text would indicate that's where he's at. Maybe it's a feeling that anything, even death, is better than a continual resistance against God. That could be, I guess. Perhaps he's already truly repented. If that was the case, I'm pretty sure he would have jumped in himself if the storm hadn't even been calmed yet. But I wonder if perhaps he lacked the courage to face the issues in his heart. Maybe he lacked the courage to deal with the resistance. I want you to think about something in verse 12. He said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. What condition of Jonah was he in that he would tell the sailors basically throw me to possible death? He's hopeless. That storm inside, for whatever reason, as Jonah looked at it and his running from God, he got to a place where he was hopeless. You and I don't need to read the paper long or watch the News long to see people who are hopeless. And what do they do? Unfortunately, some of them take their life. It's Jonah. I mean, you've got to be in pretty bad shape when you're asking people to just throw you out. That's where he's at. And that's very applicable to our, the world we live in and the people we rub shoulders with. There are desperate people out there who view life as hopeless. If you know somebody, you might want to have them listen to this message because there is hope on the horizon here. Verse 13 tells us a lot about these sailors. They didn't want to throw him in. The men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Look what they do. This is amazing. Then they called on the Lord, not Jonah, and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. The idea of the prayer is, God, it looks like we might have to toss him. We don't want to do this. Have mercy on us if this is not the right thing. This is a, really a prayer of surrender and humility, far from what we see in Jonah. End of verse 13, Jonah still inactive. We don't see him doing anything. So these sailors turn to prayer. They beg God to tell them what to do. At this point, they probably don't even trust Jonah's decision on the matter. (laughs) I certainly wouldn't at this point either. But let's face it, we don't expect to find our text reversed. We don't expect to find the believers, or the believer in this case, not praying, and the unbelievers actually praying. Think about what else we see. In this text, we see the sailors pray, Jonah does not. The sailors have compassion, Jonah has none. The sailors, in verse 16, actually worship, Jonah does not. The sailors became believers, it appears. The sailors responded to what was revealed to them. Jonah doesn't. If he does anything response, he runs the other way. We're told in verse 16, they sacrificed. That was a, a Jewish approach to God. They made vows. That was also something the Jewish people did. And I don't know if they did that because of their awareness of that, or if it was just instinctively how they responded. But it was far from what Jonah did. And so it appears these, these sailors become believers in Jehovah. In an ironic way, God was already accomplishing his purposes in spite of the prophet's rebellion. In other words, who was the storm for? Jonah. But look how God used it in these sailors' lives. It's amazing. That's stuff only God can do. And how far have these pagan sailors come in the storm? They've forsaken their gods for the one true God. They sought the Lord before taking a final step with Jonah. They acknowledge his sovereignty over all. And having prayed, they throw Jonah into the sea. Then they worship. My emotional response to this is, I would rather the sailors as my neighbors than Jonah. At this point, I read this and thinking, if you say, okay, Matt, who would you trust spiritually right now? I'm not sure I'd go with the prophet. Right now. Just because he called himself a believer, everything he's doing is taking him away from God where this group of sailors is coming to God. I think I'd want them as my neighbors. The sailors sure learned that sin and disobedience brought divine judgment and they responded and it still does. God's not fooling around when we resist Him and run from Him. The sailors moved from fearing the storm to fearing the Lord of the storm. That's a good step to take. How crucial this is. But let's look at the sinner. Jonah. Verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish. What does that mean? God looked into the great sea and said, You. Right there. That's a pretty big guy when you start appointing fish. He says, No, don't forget that tuna. You're coming this way. i got another meal for you. i got a sinner you need to swallow. There's one author who writes, Pain plants a flag of reality in a rebel's heart. It's like God is saying, okay, this is going to be unmistakable. I'm going to plant some pain in your heart. So it will bring you back to me. Jonah's rebellion, we see it, there's knowledge without action. He has knowledge of what's going on, he doesn't act on it. He has a struggle in verse 13-15 through without prayer. There's resistance in verse 15 without remorse. Jonah still hasn't acted. Jonah still hasn't done anything. They pick him up and throw him out. Jonah's just, okay. We don't see him do anything, which is mind-boggling to me. And if sailors hadn't thrown Jonah out, all would have gone down. Realize that? (laughs) I mean, they had to get rid of Jonah, and they, they did everything right about how to go about it. And the attitude the pagans had was the very attitude Jonah should have had. I thought, man, this... Man... God's trying to get Jonah's attention all through this. And I asked the text, what would it take for God to get his attention? I mean, what will it take to bring him to his knees? Let me ask you the same question. What's it going to take to bring you to your knees? Is God going to have to keep sending storms? Is He just going to leave you in the middle of it until you're willing to get on your knees and surrender and say, God, I I give. Uncle... He got my attention. You see, God loves you too much to leave you where you are, and sometimes the storms come that you will come back to Him, but He's not going to all of a sudden say, oh, I guess they're not going to come back to me. I'll take the storm away. We're told in John a remarkable account that Jesus feeds the 5,000, and uh, amazing things are going on. I mean, they, they know it's God. they got baskets left over. They got, their fridges are filled with leftovers. They're good to go. All of a sudden, we read a little bit later, a storm comes up. A literal storm. And they're caught in this bad boy. And, and, and all of a sudden, the end of the text says, the reason God sent the storm is they did not learn from the loaves. Interesting, huh? He took them from one impossible situation, put them in another one. The reason for the second storm was they didn't learn from the first one. I wonder if you're going through a second storm because you have not learned. God takes us to school often. In His curriculum often, Our storms. Jonah didn't get it. God's going to leave him in a storm to get his attention because he cares too much. What will it take to bring you to your knees? And Jonah's at a dangerous place right now. He went down to Joppa, down into a ship. Now he's going down, 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 and he's only going further. And the result is seen in the deadening of his heart. His love for God, his compassion for these sailors, even his own life, the Ninevites, diminished. It never developed. Jonah shows us really the symptoms of rebellion, I think. There's a lack of prayer. There's an absence of joy and praise. There's a lack of appreciation for life because even death looks good when you're running from God. There's a lack of sensitivity to the consequences of one's sins for other people. There's a lack of sensitivity to sin in one's own life. There's a lack of compassion for other people. And there's a a sense of disobedience to clear, the clear commands of God, which only persists. You see, if these symptoms result in your life, you need to deal with them seriously. Verse 17, the extremes God will go to to bring you back. The course of sin is, is scary. Because it easily begins with one step to the west instead of the east. It soon accelerates into a barrage of self-destructive activities. And before the hardening sets in, God sends the storms because he cares. It's true a Christian can become so hardened that he prefers death to what God wants him to do. We see here God's love for the sinner by doing what's necessary to bring him home. But will Jonah come home? Ah, He'll come back next week. Eh? Then you'll find out. What are the lessons from here? There's a lot, but I think we should camp on three. Well, the third one's got multiple ones, so you get more bang for your buck this morning. In this account, I sense Jonah's storm brought several things to light for him, and it will for us. One is you need to be really, really aware of this. God will send storms to the rebellious. You might think you're going to get away with it or try to live the Christian life and call yourself a Christian, but live totally different. God will send a storm your way, and he'll use it. It will be intentional. It will be something he allows. It might be something he clearly just sends. But he means to draw you back to him. To stop your downward spiral. He cares too much to allow you to remain where you are. A good theology will understand that God will send storms. He will. There's a second lesson. The sorrow will only increase when you resist God's storms. Your life won't get better. You won't grow spiritually. There will be no increasing joy or peace in your life. The sorrow will only increase in your soul when you resist God's storms. Jonah was willing to die than to do what God wanted. I don't know, maybe he thought going to Nineveh was certain death because of how brutal those people were and he thought, well, why should I put it off? But he doesn't even say that. So that would be speculation. It's hopeless to him. It's a dangerous place to resist and persist in rebellion, and Jonah teaches us that. And when that happens, the love for God and for people diminishes as we persist. A deadening takes place. You see it in Jonah. And soon a pagan world will begin to look more godly than you. You'll be miserable in your inner world. I wonder do we really want to go there? Is that a place you really want to be? Learn from Jonah. Your soul's sorrow will only increase when you resist. And number three, it takes divine perspective to face the storms God brings. Where will you set your eyes when the storm hits? It seems those battered by life's storms tend to set their eyes on the clouds. They scan the horizons for more lightning. We search the water's surface for the next swell, and we brace ourselves for the next surge. If we keep our eyes on the storm, we'll try to figure out, to extricate ourselves from the the bind in which we find ourselves. We'll dig the paddle deeper and we'll try to row harder because we desperately want to believe that we can deliver ourselves from life's storms. We believe if we paddle harder that we can get out of it. That's not how you get out of storms. Certainly the ones God sends. It takes divine perspective. And how do you gain that? Three things. Here's why I want you to do this next week. I want you to sit down and identify a moment or moments you experienced the holy presence of God. Look back over the years of your life and say, wow, you know, it was then, it was then, and it was then that I really experienced God's presence. And what I want you to do with that is embrace those moments. Because something happens when we look back at God's faithfulness. We have solid ground in which to set a flag. A solid ground in which to look back and say, God met me there. And he can meet me again. And sometimes that's what we need. We just need a glimpse of his faithfulness. And when we glimpse his faithfulness, it's like a life preserver is tossed out to us. We can grab a hold of it. But only when we set our eyes on him. Not the storm. Storms don't go away when we look at the storm. They only seem to increase. If only Jonah would have set his eyes on God. And not his problem. If only. Along with remembering God's presence, go to prayer. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, The wise man in the storm prays to God, not for safety from danger, but deliverance from fear. As you're tossed by the waves, God may seem to be slow in quieting the storm. He might seem slow in loosening the chains or healing the disease. But what God does do without fail is offer his peace. It's a miraculous peace. We're told it's a peace that passes all understanding. And this peace can only be accessed by prayer. R.A. Torrey's is right. Those persons who know the deep peace of God, the unfathomable peace that passes understanding, are always men and women of prayer. You want to make it through the storm, you want to find that peace, you need to get on your knees and bow before God like the sailors did. Not like Jonah did not. There's a third thing that's crucial to us having a divine perspective, Scripture. When tossed about by the waves, do you reach for the Scriptures? They are indeed a life preserver. Scripture puts us in touch with the person, the character, and the plan of God. The lie of the darkness is that we are utterly alone. That we're caught in this blinded storm, and there's no one there. That's the lie of the devil. We're tempted to believe God's not there. But as we turn to Scripture, our hearts are grounded in the truth of God's presence. You see, it's in Scripture the lie that we are alone in a storm is dispelled by the light of truth. Will you turn to the Scriptures? Human reasoning won't cut it. Closing, I, like you, have had my share of storms and despair, some out of the blue and some certainly of my own making. There's days... Probably like you, I didn't want to get up and face another day of disappointing God or others, and certainly myself. Even as I studied this past week, I was reminded of times in my life where God brought this peace that was unexplainable. It shouldn't have been there in light of what was going on around me, but it was clearly from Him. Even when I've been gripped by worry and waves of unworthiness, His peace has been accessible. Because I've experienced God's peace before, and so have you, I hope. And even if I reel or stumble today, tossed about by a dozen white-capped waves, I know his calm will come again. And I know Jesus will find me in those frightening and fearful places, for I remember how he's shown up in the past, for me and countless others. And I don't know, he may choose to calm the outer storm, he may choose to calm the inner one. All I do know, either's fine as long as I get to the place where it is well with my soul and I'm resting in His grip. That's really the only miracle you and I need. One day at a time to know we're in His grip and to know without a doubt that He loves us and that He's for us and He offers us His peace today. I had this week received a card from a dear friend of mine, timely in multiple ways personally, but even as I studied this, Here's what the front of the card said. My prayer is that you will find some word, some verse, or some thought that will convince you that God is very near. I pray that as you read, you'll be reminded that the same voice that stilled the rage on the Sea of Galilee can still the storm in your world. Be assured, He's closer than you've ever dreamed. Let's pray. Lord, there's everything about this account that reminds me of me. It's pretty easy to look at Jonah and fault him, but I look at my life and don't seem I'm a whole lot different at times. Maybe I'm not alone. And Lord, I'm, I know that there's a lot of us who, if we haven't already, maybe are or will be in the midst of a storm maybe of our own making, maybe one that just suddenly comes upon us. And my prayer, God, for myself and each one here is not that we'd seek to get out of the storm, but that we'd glorify you in it. Their heart's desire would not be one of escape, but be one of worship. And Lord, I beg you, please, in each of our lives, give us a divine perspective. We'll never get through it on our own. Might we grab the life preserver of your faithfulness? Might we access that through prayer? And as we open Scripture, Lord, would you lift us out of the waves? We could experience that peace. Your peace. I don't know what tomorrow holds for each of us, but I know you hold tomorrow please hold us close, God. Keep us close to your heart. And for those who may be running, whether they're here in the sanctuary or listening some other way, take the rebel heart, God, and break it. Might there be surrender instead of resistance? Might there be worship instead of rebellion? And God, might you so do a work in the storms that we run to you, not away from you. And find you to be ever faithful. And as that card told me, that we realize you're never, never more present, even in the storm. So Jesus, thank you. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.